two pickles fell out of a jar onto the floor. What did one say to the other? What's the big deal? <laughs> Hello, everybody, and welcome to Starting Sustainability, episode 78. I am your host, Kaylin Chenoweth. Friends of the show, Michael and Nick Nazarian from Realistic Sustainability, have done a fantastic job of continuously showing support towards starting sustainability, and it is high time that I return the favor. So before we get into catching up with Kaylin, I want you to hear about all the cool things that Mike and Nick have been up to lately. Welcome to the Realistic Sustainability Podcast, a guide to greening your life. Each week, we will explore sustainability concepts and what we can do to reduce our family's carbon footprint while growing our positive footprint. This show supports step-by-step progress without those extreme jump-all-in measures. So join us on Anchor or your favorite podcast platform and subscribe today. Hey, did you know May 2nd through the 8th was International Composting Awareness Week? I just found that out on Tuesday, May 4th. (laughs) As always, I'm just a little late finding out. (laughs) It is the largest and most comprehensive education initiative of the compost industry, and it is celebrated nationwide and in other countries each year during the first full week of May. Even though we missed the window, we can still spread awareness about composting and all the positivity that it creates for the earth. To celebrate International Compost Awareness Week, a week late. Here's six amazing things that compost does. Number one, it contributes to a circular economy. Grow, eat, compost, repeat. That's the theme of the International Compost Awareness Week 2021. And by choosing to compost your food waste, you contribute to the circular movement of organic recycling from farm to fork and back again. Number two, it sequesters carbon. Adding compost to soil increases soil health as it stimulates microbe growth. Compost is an effective way to sequester carbon. This means it pulls and stores carbon in the soil instead of releasing it into the air. Number three, it improves soil structure. Compost increases the organic matter in the soil. By adding more organic matter, farmers can increase the maximum yield potential of their fields. It makes fields easier to work and provides better crop establishment. Number four, it reduces flood risk. Compost has high organic content. This helps it to absorb up to four times its weight in water. It can replace essential organic material in wetlands. Five, it keeps resources local. Composting keeps resources in your region without relying on export. It turns waste into useful resources, helping businesses reduce their environmental impact and join the circular economy. Did you know composting is officially defined as a form of recycling? And last, number six, it creates jobs. Composting diversifies waste. This creates businesses and job opportunities in the waste sector, especially in rural areas, and nutrient-rich compost for farmers' fields, helping to grow plants and crops for consumers. If composting is a bit too much work for you, Listen in on my interview with Stephanie Miller, where she shares tips on how us busy people can have a big impact on the earth with minimal time and effort. 
Do you remember Tom Bowman from episode 69? He wrote the book, What If Solving the Climate Crisis is Simple? And that book was part of a book series called Resetting Our Future. Today, I have another author whose book is part of that same series. She wrote Zero Waste Living, The 80-20 Way, The Busy Person's Guide to a Lighter Footprint. Please welcome Stephanie Miller. Hello, Stephanie. Hi, Kaylin. Great to be here. All right. I'm glad that you're able to join us. Go ahead and tell us a little bit about yourself. Sure. Well, uh, I have always been attracted to a zero waste lifestyle, uh, but I, like so many people, have always been a busy person. And I felt like I was too busy to recycle properly, buy the products that were good for the environment, reduce my single use plastic. And the interesting thing is, I felt this way, like I was not. Uh, doing what I should while I was actually leading climate change at the private sector part of the World Bank, where it was actually my job to help governments and private sector get on a more sustainable path. But in my own life, I felt like I wasn't really doing enough. And then after 25 years in that organization, I decided to leave. I decided to take what I call the gap year. It was my son's last year before he headed to college, and I wanted to spend more time with him. And I finally had time on my hands. And so I started digging deep and seeing what I could do to reduce my personal carbon and waste footprints and realized it wasn't as hard as I thought it was. And that's why I wrote the book, Zero Waste Living the 80-20 Way, because I wanted to tell the other busy people like I was a couple of years ago that it can be done even when you have a full-time job. I find it interesting that you kind of got a sustainability jumpstart at work over your personal life. And ironically, I'm the same way. We had a real big initiative at work and I kind of did a little bit here and there at home, but then that really pushed me to branch out more at home. But I would think the average person is really, they do it more at home than kind of push for it at work. So you and I just got to be on the opposite end of the spectrum on that. Yeah. <laughs> But that helped yes. me relate to you so much better in the book. I was like, okay, I'm not the only one who's backwards. <laughs> so after you left the company, you then started in on your personal sustainable journey, like you talked about. And in the book, you even wrote about one of your first experiences at the dry cleaners. Would you like to share that story and the lessons that you gathered from it? Yeah, that was, uh, it, I, it's kind of a silly thing in retrospect, but I had always been really bothered by all the plastic that I was bringing home. I would go to the dry cleaners once or twice a week to pick up my dry cleaning clothes. And, you know, it comes in those uh, sheets of plastic. And I'd been wanting to do this thing. And I don't know why I had to quit my job to get up the nerve to do it. But the week after I finished my 25 years at the same organization, I walked into the dry cleaners with my own garment bag. And I said, would you mind putting my clothes into my garment bag instead of in the plastic? And I realized they, that it wasn't a big deal for them. And they agreed very quickly to do that. That one thing led to another. And I realized I could actually... Uh, help them adopt a reusable bag program. And I put signs up in the neighborhood, letting people know that they were offering this. And a very short time later, I mean, a question of weeks and months, not years, uh, they now have about a third of their customers that use these dark green reusable bags and um, saves a lot of plastic. Uh, their customers love it. So it's a great story. But what it actually made me realize was that you know, probably a lot of people would want to do this sort of thing. They just 
don't take the time, as I did not take the time all, all, all those years to do something about it. Probably storekeepers want to do the right thing by their customers, but they don't realize sometimes what that thing is. So, um, and people are busy. The other thing I realized in doing this, it was a real eye-opener, is how quickly you can make change happen. I mean, this was, I have pictures from day one where it's all plastic and then pictures from three months later where you've got the scene of all these green reusable bags. So it makes you realize that a lot can happen in a short period of time. And that gave me a lot of aha moments, let's say. So that was your first story going zero waste out in the world. But when you went zero waste in your personal life, you did have some encounters with your partner specifically around cereal. And when I read that part of your book, I died laughing (laughs) because you mentioned it's not as easy as you thought it was going to be. And I was like, yeah, that was my thought too. I'm on board. How do I get my partner on board? (laughs) Go ahead and share your cereal story so the listeners know what we're talking about. Yeah. So I was reading everything I could. I was really gung-ho. I was changing things left and right. And my, my, at the time, living boyfriend, now fiance, uh, was, was really supportive. I mean, really supportive. He was, I was writing stuff on Instagram. He was reading all my drafts, but one day I looked into our recycle bin one week and I was just shocked. There were three boxes of Cracklin' Oat brand cereal. And I was like, okay, they're only two of us here, what's going on? And I realized that this is something, this was his favorite cereal and this was gonna be a little tough, but I thought, okay, I know he's on board with me. So I'm gonna go ahead and ask him the question. Sweetheart, would you be willing, if I could buy some granola in the bulk section, would you be willing for me to get you that instead of the Cracklin' Oat brand? Because then we won't have the plastic that we'd be bringing in the house as well as the cardboard, of course, that the cereal boxes are made of. And he said, no, I, I, I'm not willing to do that. <laughs> so, okay, that was my first real stumbling block. After a while, I thought, well, let me try to make granola. I've never tried to make granola from scratch. And I made it from scratch. And I said, look, would you be willing to try this granola? And he did. And I said, would you be willing to eat this every morning instead of Cracklin' Oakland? Well, maybe just a little bit, but I'm, I'm still going to buy a Cracklin' Oakland. Anyway, the, the end of the story is that today he loves that granola so much that it's I'm now standing in the way of the zero waste with respect to the cereal because I have to keep making this stuff uh, every week to keep up with uh, his habit. But the great thing about that made me realize I might have all this energy for zero waste and I'm not necessarily going to get Matt, uh, is his name, on board with me on everything right away. And maybe on some of it, never, you know, and that's, that's okay. That's come up a lot in this podcast and previous episodes. How do you get your partner on board? And there's not any one good solution to that. It's just everybody's different and you got to come up with what appeals to them and other solutions. I have also made homemade granola and it's delicious but it is, you have to make it every week and we are cereal people. So I'm like, well, this week we got one less box of cereal and it might go two or three weeks before I'm able to make the granola again, but all of it is still helpful. Absolutely. (laughs) The title of your book is Zero Waste Living, the 80-20 Way. Can you explain this 80-20 rule to everybody? This idea that not all actions yield the same amount of results. And if you focus your attention on the most important things, that really critical 20%, you can get 80% of the result. 
And so the idea of the book in 8020 is I don't think it's realistic to get to zero, not to mention that the whole supply system that we have, there's so much packaging involved, just getting, for example, the, the food to the store. So even if you manage to take it out of the store without packaging, there was still packaging involved getting it there. So that does not excuse me from trying to do my best. And the 8020 is figuring out for me what the easiest and most impactful actions are that I can take. And for me, it's not agreeing not to fly. That's when I was in my job, that wasn't an option. I couldn't say, sorry, I'm not going to go to this meeting overseas because I'm doing, you know, zero waste. So it's picking the easy things and the really impactful things. And where those two meet is what I try to focus on and what I try to get everyone around me excited about focusing on. So when you combine those two things, highly impactful and easy to implement, you came up with three different themes that those fit into. And that was your focus on food, purging plastics and recycling, right? Yes. Okay. So let's dive into the first category, which is your focus on food. And basically it's increase plant-based meals, reduce food waste and start composting. That sounds so simple. <laughs> And I'm laughing because the reality is, it's not quite that simple. <laughs> no, absolutely. But it's not that hard either. That's the right attitude. Yes. Yes. <laughs> so one of your tips is to reduce meat consumption by 25%. Now, what is the easiest way to calculate that? Because you know what I mean? Like not all of us yes. have engineer type brains. So yes. how, what's yes. the simple way to, to know that we're doing that right? I think it's great to do calculations. And I actually, every week or so, someone sends me a calculator. You can calculate your carbon footprint of this, that, and the other. Actually, part of the reason I came up with the magic three, as I call it, these three themes and the 80-20 was because I don't think we actually have to be spending a lot of time doing calculations. I think as long as we know that the things we're putting our energy into uh, reducing waste or, or reducing food waste or composting are actually very impactful uh, from a climate or waste perspective, we can feel really good about it. Actually, there's a, a great author named uh, Jonathan Saffron for Saffron, I may be getting it wrong, wrote, we are the weather. And it's essentially saying, you can reduce your meat-based uh, meals, you can move to plant-based meals by just eliminating meat or dairy from breakfast and lunch. Well, that works for some people. My approach is everyone is different. So when I looked at my own situation and I was approximately trying to reduce by at least 25%, what I noticed was that breakfast for me is almost always meat-free and mostly dairy-free lunches kind of half the time, but the real culprit in my household was dinner. Dinner's not dinner if there isn't a meat dish. So the, the answer to your question is my rough calculation was that if I could get us to more than half, so four meals a week vegetarian, then I was making a big dent, even bigger than the 25% in our meat consumption. And that's been a whole lot of fun because I love cooking. Not everybody does. I've made a kind of a game of it. I post on my Instagram site about the latest vegetarian recipe I've been cooking. We do a bit of a cook along, some of us. And, and now I have this whole repertoire of vegetarian meals. One of the things that I tried after I read that in your book, it's the same thing here. There's definitely meat at every meal. Every once in a while, if I'm cooking and I can kind of sneak it by him or he doesn't realize that there's not meat in it. But the moment that he realizes it, it's immediately counteracted by now I have to go make a ham sandwich, <laughs> even though he just had a whole meal. 
So one thing I did the other day, we had tacos. So I still had ground hamburger meat, but then I cooked lentils and I mixed it in. I couldn't do just lentil tacos because I've done that in the past and it, it didn't go. But if I did half and half, I've reduced the meat reduce the cost, also increase the nutrition profile. So I'm happy that way. And nobody noticed. Oh, that is awesome. That is awesome. (laughs) So I was happy about that. One of the things in your book is you mentioned to prioritize your diet based on the carbon intensity of food. And it comes with this cool little chart that tells you of these are the top 10 food items that have the biggest carbon footprint. And when I read the list, starting at the top, the worst offenders are beef, lamb, cheese, which is number three. And that immediately made me kind of question because it's allowed on a vegetarian meal. So I didn't know what to do about that. Can we still eat that? A vegan diet is, is more carbon friendly than a vegetarian diet. And a vegetarian diet is generally more carbon friendly than a meat-based diet and certainly a beef-based diet, right? So the reason I introduced the idea of the carbon intensity of foods is, again, to get away from this whole black and white idea of, well, all vegetables are are good, all meat is bad. And to really introduce the idea of choice and decision-making that we each have every day when we're planning a meal, planning, deciding what we're going to eat, it basically lays out for every kilo of certain categories of food, how much carbon emissions are the result of that uh, kilo of food. And before I knew this, before I was really aware, I, I don't think I appreciated the fact that if I chose chicken over beef, that I was responsible for 10 times less the carbon emissions. Now I haven't sworn beef out of my diet, but I kind of make a little pledge to myself that I will try not to have beef more than once a month, right? That was not in my sights before this. And I have a much bigger appreciation of the difference between salmon, which is, again, much less carbon intensive, wild caught salmon, much less carbon intensive than chicken, which in turn is much less carbon intensive compared to beef and lamb. So there are choices to be made every day. And that's the point I was trying to make in in showing this graph. Oh, good. I'm very relieved to hear that because number four on the list is chocolate. And that (laughs) that's my Achilles heel. That's my weakness. (laughs) In fact, uh, I have chocolate uh, very nearby me at any moment. Yes, it's my weakness too. And so here's something you'll feel better about. Remember that each of those food products, we're, we're measuring a kilo. So when's the last time you had a kilo of chocolate? You can have a little bit of chocolate. You can have a little bit of coffee. Yes, they are more carbon intensive. And for those of you on the US metric system, one kilo is 2.2 pounds. So that's a really hefty chocolate bar. So yeah, yeah. <laughs> eat it sparingly and get fair trade. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> and in zero waste packaging, just do what you can. <laughs> yes, exactly. That is terrific advice. So what are your tips for reducing food waste? Like when you go grocery shopping, I don't have a bulk store near me. And in the wintertime, there's no farmer's market. Then it gets really tricky after that. What are your recommendations? The food waste issue is so huge, right? And this was one of the biggest surprises to me. I mean, I used to work in climate change, but I did not realize how important food waste is in terms of climate emissions. It's, you may have heard the statistic that if food waste were a country, it would be third behind the US and China in terms of carbon emissions. So it's really significant. But the even bigger surprise for me was how much we at the household level contribute 
to the food waste problem much more than hotels, restaurants, farms, grocery stores. So what can you do? The first thing, of course, is planning. Know what you're going to make, go to the store and get just what you're going to use. One of the things I recommend in the book that has really cut down on food waste for us is I do what's called a daily fridge review. Every single day, it doesn't take more than two minutes, I go into the fridge and my goal is to figure out what is going to go bad soon and move it forward. And I have a shelf I label eat me first. So anyone else who goes in the fridge that doesn't do this fridge review knows that's the stuff they should be eating first if they want a snack. I've also found it's been really critical to put things in transparent containers. You could put it in glass jars, but if it's not visible, if you don't see it, you know, you, you're almost blind to it, I find. That's made a really, really big difference. I think as soon as I started doing this fridge review, our food waste, I mean, that's how heavy the trash can was at the end of the week was was noticeable by by Matt, who takes the garbage out every week. He's like, oh, this is like half the garbage we we were we had compared to last week. It made a really big difference. And the third component for the food plan part is composting. And this is a guide for the busy person, right? Because composting is a daily chore. From what I understand, I, I've been failing at it miserably. <laughs> well, it's, you know, it's a, it's a great question. And I was so, so nervous about composting. I never composted until I started the zero waste stuff. So for me, composting was something gardeners did. I have some really friends with great green thumbs. Those are the people that compost. So now I compost and I can tell you it's not that hard, but there are a lot of obstacles to composting. You have to have usually there are the worm composters for in tiny, you know, in apartments or whatever. But if you're going to compost outdoors, you have to have the outdoor space. It's not a no brainer for people. It's not that hard. We could do a whole separate podcast just on how easy composting really is. But when I found out how profoundly important uh, eliminating food waste from landfills was, because there it contributes to the production of methane, which is a a greenhouse gas so much more potent than carbon dioxide, then I figured I had to find a way. Now in Washington, DC, I will admit, and your, your audience must be was much wider than Washington, DC, but we're very lucky, but I'm gonna name a few things that I think are available in some larger metropolis areas. Maybe not, I looked up, you're in Franklin, Indiana, so maybe not in Franklin, but I have an idea for you too. In Washington, DC, we have Farmers market drop-off. So the city provides drop-off sites in every neighborhood, large ward in DC. Uh, they're free. So that's really easy. You just collect your compost scraps in the freezer. And then at the end of the week, you can uh, bring them there. I invested at the time I started doing this in a compost service that came to my door. I paid $8 a week. So it wasn't cheap, but it, it was so important to me that I do this, that I was, I was happy to, to make that contribution. And then I found out, so I'm sitting right now for the last month in a hotel with a kitchenette and I accumulated a whole bunch of food scraps in the freezer here. And I've been racking my brain. I'm in Phoenix trying to figure out where to bring this. I couldn't find all the recommendations I give in the book. I, I started going one by one. Well, I found an app this week that I was so excited about called Share Waste, where basically it's like a dating service in a way. It connects people who want food scraps with people who have food scraps. And so I just dropped my food scraps off two days ago um, at this woman's house, 10 minutes away from my hotel. So there are opportunities 
And I'll just say the opportunity of last resort that I talk about in the book is almost every single community, at least in the US, has this concept of a master gardener. So if you look up master gardener near me, Google it, they you will almost always find someone who can tell you where to take your compost. Those are excellent ideas. That sounds way easier than doing my own compost pile. (laughs) (laughs) I'm excited about the app. (laughs) The second theme is to focus on purging plastics. And there's a direct quote from your book. Single-use plastic is packaging that you probably touch for only seconds or minutes before you dispose of it because it is ubiquitous and so convenient. It takes some effort to avoid. This is so true. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. So what are your tips for minimal yet impactful effort in regards to plastics? This is one of those things that was such an eye-opener for me Again, I knew I had a lot of plastic in my life. I used to walk around my office building with a plastic water bottle all the time. And it's really hard to realize how much plastic, single-use plastic, we are going through every day and every week. My, what I recommend, and the thing that was an eye-opener to me was what I recommend to everyone is pick one thing. And what I mean by that is pick just, if you spend a few seconds, you can pretty quickly realize what you buy in plastic regularly, every day or every week. Almost everything that comes in plastic has a non-plastic alternative packaging, if you look hard enough, right? For me, it was the plastic water bottle. I picked this, I decided I'm never going to buy a plastic water bottle again. That was a big commitment for me. The alternative was I bought myself a stainless steel bottle and I promised myself if I forgot the bottle at home, then I would go thirsty or use the water fountain at work. Anyway, it worked. Uh, After forgetting it a couple of times, I never forgot it again. Um, But if you pick one thing, I really believe it becomes a gateway to consciousness about how much plastic is really in our lives. And then once you realize it, if you're like me, then you start to try to figure out what else you could reduce besides that thing. And there's so many easy things. I think you've got a bunch of great podcasts already on this. One of my favorite easy ones, I, I know you talked about this because I remember it, is the non-paper towel system, or at least that's what I call it. You know, instead of paper towels, which you have the waste of the paper, and then you've got the plastic it comes in. Instead of doing that, you can use washcloths. You can make your own from rags. I've got some of those, or you can just buy a set of washcloths and never use a paper towel again. It is so rewarding. And that's an easy one, right? It's harder than to move to handkerchiefs instead of Kleenex. But you start to think about, well, what else could I do? And then once you do that, you say, well, what else could I do? And that has led to a lot of fun for me and also a lot of appreciation for how quickly we've been able to reduce our packaging, not to zero, definitely not to zero, but way, way down. I learned this term in this section of your book, and it's called shopping naked. And it's not quite what it sounds like, but but I'll let you explain what it is. I love this term. The idea is uh, not as exciting as it sounds, but it's, um, it's, it's looking for the produce that isn't packaged. And again, one of those things where your blinders on and you notice it or you or you don't notice it. And now I notice it, right? When you go to the store and you're looking for carrots, there's probably in your Kroger's or your Albertsons or 
or whatever your grocery store is, there are carrots that are probably there that are in plastic and there's some that are naked, not in plastic. And if you bring your own cotton produce bags, which I do, and just take the carrots you want, put them in your own bag, and you completely avoid all those plastic bags that you would otherwise pick up in the grocery store to put your items in. So you get, if you do the two things, you look for produce that isn't already packaged and you bring your own uh, reusable bags, that's it. You've eliminated that whole stream of plastic that you were bringing home before. It, it does mean that I don't buy everything I want anymore. I don't always get the little mandarins, clementines that are in the plastic netting. I sometimes miss those, but then I buy the oranges and I cut them up and that's fine. Just on a personal note, the miniolas are a type of smaller orange that are very sweet and very easy to peel. Oh, miniolas. Think of like Minnesota when you go shopping. Ah, That's just a side note. I found those. I was like, oh, I discovered those in Florida. So they obviously have a much wider variety of citrus options down there. But (laughs) but when I see them, when I see them here in Indiana, I'm like, oh, and I get really excited. Yeah, they're not as big as the regular oranges. They're definitely bigger than the little cuties, but they're an in-between. They're the closest thing that I could find that comes naked. Yeah. Oh, cool. In your book, you had mentioned you get the orange juice in the cardboard container. Is that the Tetra Pak one or are you talking yeah. like the frozen orange juice? Oh, I wasn't even thinking of the frozen. I was thinking of the Tetra Pak, uh, and, which is recyclable. Oh, see, I, I read that you couldn't recycle Tetra Paks. I'm glad you're bringing this up. There are, I would say, 80%, I would say, of the recycling rules in the U.S. that the MRFs, the the materials recycling facilities have in every municipality, are the same. There are many rules that are similar across the U.S. And then you've got the 20% different ones. Some places let you put the plastic cap back on the uh, the carton, and some don't want to see the plastic cap on. Some take black plastic and some don't. So there's some rules that are, you cannot break. You cannot put a plastic grocery bag into the recycling bin. It's very disruptive for these facilities. They have to sometimes tear them out with box cutters. It's dangerous. But there's some things like you're talking about, and I'm, you're absolutely right. I've heard, te- so Tetra Pak happens to be recyclable and acceptable in my municipality, but maybe it's not in yours. So in yours, an even better reason to find an alternative. In mine, you know, cardboard is recyclable. So you could say, well, that's fine then. Uh, obviously it takes energy to recycle something. So it's not totally fine. And then the problem with anything that's paper cardboard is the fibers get shorter and shorter and it becomes less recyclable. So paper and cardboard can be recycled seven to nine times, uh, not infinitely like metals, aluminum, glass can be. Okay. Oh, another tip that you had in this section for purging plastics was getting a collapsible silicone container for your doggy bag whenever you go out to eat. And I thought that's an excellent idea. I didn't even know those existed. And so I have you on video and I I can see your little collapsible silicone doggy bag. What can you share what the brand is so listeners can look it up and check it out? So I got mine on Etsy from a place called Keep Gaia Wild, G-A-I-A. I actually wrote to the company and I asked, where does she source these collapsible silicone containers? 
from, and she said they're manufactured in Singapore using recycled silicon. Um, so I was really happy about that. But that was, this is the one thing I've purchased that I actually, nobody sent me an ad for it. I actually went online to try to find something like this because I kept finding this is pre-COVID that I would go to a coffee shop and I'd have half a croissant left or lunch and I didn't eat the whole sandwich. And I, I kept, you know, they kept putting the rest of it in something that was not very sustainable. So I thought, oh, I need something that's collapsible that I can actually fit in my purse. And this has been a lifesaver. I, so I take these with me wherever I go. Well, that's smart because I was thinking, oh, I could just use some of the Tupperware that I have. I'm like, yeah, but it's big and bulky. And a lot of times when I get leftovers, I wasn't planning on the leftovers. I just got full. Exactly. <laughs> And the last thing that stood out to me in this section was you mentioned using the loop store for those hard to replace plastic package items. Now I've been doing the sustainability thing for like a good year and a half, almost two years at this point. And I have never heard of the loop store. And I'm questioning myself, how, how have I never heard of this? How did you learn about it? Back when I was still at my job, I was following all these sustainability sites for my work. And the World Economic Forum had a bunch of announcements for their December meeting that year. This was about two years ago, actually. And they announced that they were going to come out with this company, which is a bit like the, if you think of the milk delivery man system, stuff gets delivered to you and then you return the, the milk bottles in that case. In this case, you return the containers that the stuff comes in, but it's consumer products. So it's stuff like shampoo, conditioner, detergent, stuff that I was not finding. I was not crazy about, sorry to say this if you're a fan, but I wasn't crazy about the shampoo bars. I tried them. The rest of my family didn't like them. So I could not wait for this company to start. And they finally did about six months later. And now they've expanded across the US. There are at least six or seven things I buy from them on a regular basis. I have them delivered. And then I never have that stream of plastic in my trash or recycling. So it's great. Is the loop just the U.S. or is it in other parts of the world? It's actually a U.S.-based company, uh, TerraCycle, you may have heard of. They recycle hard to recycle, uh, otherwise really hard to recycle things. And they, it's TerraCycle that partnered with Nestle, um, uh, Procter & Gamble, and other, other consumer products companies to come up with this reusable packaging. A lot of it is stainless steel. Some of it is plastic, but it's all reusable. It is available in other countries now. I know they recently expanded to Canada, to France, to the UK, and those are the ones off the top of my head. Uh, so it's great. Awesome. I'm really glad to hear that. The third and final theme for your 8020 book is to recycle right. In the chapter, you mentioned some big changes heading our way in the future. Can you explain what the Break Free from Plastic Pollution Act is? Because I had not heard of it before I read your book. Yeah, it's an act that was presented to the House of Representatives last year. So February 2020. Uh, it's not passed yet, but it's very exciting if it does pass. Um, it would finally put, so it, so it, it has to do with, deal, with the plastics uh, problem and the recycling problem. If it passes, it will 
put the burden on the producers of these products to collect and to manage and to recycle their packaging instead of it being all on us, the consumers. So that's one of the most exciting aspects of it. It will once and for all, because there are bans in certain states, but it will ban uh, some of the uh, single-use plastic, like the takeout containers, the plastic utensils, styrofoam. So that would be great. And then it will also support more recycled content, right? Because it's one thing to put all the stuff into the recycling bin. If there's no one buying the products that are made from the recycled materials, then you have a problem. And that is a problem. That, that's another thing the legislation will support. Uh, there, there are a bunch of aspects to it. The other thing that's very, I think, important is the facilities that produce the plastic are extremely polluting. Hazardous pollutants that come out of this are very dangerous to the people that live in the proximity of these facilities. So it will put a, the EPA, I think, will be in charge of putting a halt to the new permits for these plastic factories, these plastic facilities, until they understand better what the effects of them are and how to better manage them for the populations that live near those plants. Wow, those definitely are some big changes heading our way, and I'm really excited to see that. (laughs) Me too. Me too. I learned another fun term in this section of your book, wish cycling. Can you elaborate on that, please? Yeah, that's that thing you do that I do when you hover with something over the recycle bin because you're not actually sure it's recyclable, but you really, really, really want it to be recyclable. And when we put things in the recycle bin that don't belong there, that's wish cycling. We put it there with good intention, but whatever goes there that doesn't belong there becomes is considered contamination. And, and that can take really onerous forms like we talked about if you put grocery plastic grocery bags in, that's dangerous for the workers that actually work on these at these recycling sorting centers. And then you've got things like the kind of plastics that don't belong in the recycle bin. If they get added to the bales that they collect and then sell, um, they reduce the value of that whole bale if they've thrown in things that are not the kinds of things that the off-takers want to buy from the recycling facility. So it's pretty important to get it right. Wish cycling is something uh, I've stopped doing. <laughs> I, mean, I I probably do research than most people, more research than most people do before I put something in. But, you know, they, they say, and I think it's true that when in doubt, you should put it in the trash. When in doubt, throw it out. Yeah, I'm very guilty of wish cycling. I've been better at it since I've read your book. (laughs) (laughs) I've been better, but there are times like, I really want this to be recycled. Maybe if I stick it in here, they'll just get my subliminal message that they need to figure this out. (laughs) That's not the reality, but that that makes sense in my head. (laughs) Good intentions. Yeah. What are your suggestions for recycling the right way then? So I think it's pretty simple. Every municipality, as I said, has different rules. A lot of them have the same rules across the country, but they all also have exceptions. So if you, if anyone were to Google uh, recycling rules near me, then you could, or if you know what county you're in, most people do, and you, you know, look up the recycling rules for that county. Almost every county I've looked up has some kind of educational tool, whether it's a poster that you can print 
uh, or just a flyer with the do's and don'ts, what to put in what. So I think it's really important that we actually know what's on that list because those are the most important things. And what I did is I printed it out and I put it on the recycling bin. So again, I know the rules in the house, but maybe not everybody does. And that way, before they wish cycle, you know, they've got it right there handy. It uh, doesn't do a whole lot of good if it's on the internet and no one's using it. So that's the, the easy way to get it right is to just know the rules in your municipality. And then in the book, I talk about this other thing I call the recycling audit. And this is something that really sounds boring, but it really helped me to get a window on what our recycling problem was. The reason I love the audit is not just because you try to get it right, but also because it tells you where you could start to reduce. So for example, and the recycle audit is, it sounds very fancy, but it's really just the day before your recycling is supposed to be picked up. So it's all already gathered in the bin, you spread it out in a towel or a tarp and you separate it into the categories that they would do in the uh, recycling plan into plastic, metals, paper and cardboard and glass. And you take a look at it. And once you look, you understand, oh my goodness, how could we, like the cereal boxes, how could we possibly have three cereal boxes in one week in the, in the bin? And then you could come to the conclusion that you might want to find another less plastic intensive or just a more sustainable packaging alternative. So I, I love the audit for that reason. I've heard of doing audits before, but it's always been trash audits. I never thought to do a recycling audit to ensure that you are recycling the right way. When I read through the recycling part of your book, I discovered a lot of no-no's that I didn't know about and most people don't know about, like the glass breaking. And so now some places won't even take glass. What are some other no-nos that are kind of shocking that most people don't think about? I'll name a few of them. So one of them is small things. Anything that's under two inches in diameter, uh, most facilities, it will get caught in the machinery, it will fall through, it, it won't actually get sorted. If your jurisdiction allows you to put the bottle caps onto the bottles that you're recycling, then you should do that. If they don't, unfortunately, you should just throw away the cap because it doesn't belong on its own in the bin. Another one is that I was surprised about was shredded paper. So you think, well, paper is recyclable. If you shred things, and we used to shred a lot of things, now we're more careful to just shred what we have to. But when you shred, it's again, it's too small to be kind of caught up in the sorting system. A much better thing to do if you compost is to put your shredded paper into the compost bin because that actually is a good use for the shredded paper. Another thing is, and it's such a big problem now with COVID, so many people are doing takeout. And those takeout containers, very often they've got the clear top and the black plastic bottom. Not in all, but in most jurisdictions, that black plastic is not recyclable. It's not that the plastic isn't, it's just, it's a kind of an obscure thing, but the infrared sorting system doesn't sort for black plastic. And a lot of the off-takers don't want that black plastic in the mix. So that's another reason to try to avoid takeout containers or to find alternatives. One of my favorite things to do now is to, when we're getting takeout, we take it out. We don't do delivery so that we can bring our own containers, ask them to put our food in our containers, which all the places I've ever asked do. And then we eliminate that source of plastic, which is great. 
All of those are shocking. When I was reading that, I was like, oh my goodness. I was like, okay, we got to cover that in the podcast. Like the black takeout container, I'm guilty of. I'm like, okay, I flip it over. It's got a little recycle symbol. I'm good. And you're right. Yeah, they can recycle that plastic, but it's not desirable. It's not sortable. And it just ends up going to the trash anyways. Yeah, some counties do take it. Let me just be clear on the black plastic, but most don't. You got to know your county or your municipality. There's plenty more good stuff in your book. So definitely listeners of the podcast, please check out her book. And your book comes with some handy dandy guides and charts at the back of the book that will make your life a lot easier. If members of Sustainer Nation have additional questions, what is the best way for them to get a hold of you? So, and I'm always happy to answer questions. My email, I'm happy to answer emails, is stephanie at zerowasteindc.com. And I have a website with the same name, www.zerowasteindc.com. Please follow me on Instagram. You can join the vegetarian cook-alongs or see my recycling tips of the week. Uh, But yeah, I'm always happy to answer questions. Feel free to send them my way. And if they want to get your book, where do they go? Thank you for asking that. So of course, it's available on the usual suspects, uh, Amazon and Barnes and Noble, including by ebook. It's also available, it can be ordered through independent bookstores. uh, So that's another possibility. And you said that you've been listening to my podcast. So we're at the end of the interview. Do you know what comes next? I don't. It's game time. Oh, maybe I haven't listened all the way through then. Okay. (laughs) I've catered this game just for you. And that's a pun. I catered it because it's all about cooking. Cool. Because I know that you like to cook. You talk about cooking all of your vegetarian recipes and your Instagram and all of that stuff. So I have come up with cooking terms and I want to see if you know them. This first one is, what do you call something that is cooked so it is still tough when bitten, often referring to pasta? Al dente. Oh, Oh, see, you got it. You didn't even need the multiple choice. (laughs) Oh, I should have waited. Oh, no, you're good. Number two, a dish in which ingredients are set into a gelatin made from a meat stock or consomme. Okay, I'll wait for the multiple possibilities. A, bisque, B, aspic, or C, bone broth. Aspic, but I do not like aspic. (laughs) So I think I, although I know the term, I've shut it out of my mind. I don't know anybody that does like aspic. (laughs) Sounds disgusting. Probably there are some out there, but certainly not me. (laughs) Mm, A meat jello. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Okay, number three. A container holding hot water into which a pan is placed for slow cooking, otherwise known as a water bath or double broiler. Your options are braising, brining, or bain-marie. Might be pronounced bain-marie. Oh, I think it's the last one. Yes. Bain-marie. Bain-marie. Only because it's not the first two. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) That's why I did multiple choice. Thank you. To plunge into boiling water, remove after a moment, and then plunge into iced water to halt the cooking process, usually referring to vegetable or fruit. Blanching, canning, or broil. I just did this yesterday, blanching. Yay! Yay! All right. <laughs> You're doing oh, awesome. How fun! I love that. 
Okay, here's another one. The fifth flavor element not covered by sweet, sour, salty, and bitter. Most often associated with Japanese cooking and the taste enhancing ingredient MSG. You got it? Yes. Umami. Yay. <laughs> <laughs> okay, now I threw this one in just to be a little a challenge because I didn't know how well you're going to do. And you've done awesome on all of them. So now here's your challenge. A scrap or morsel of food left over after a meal. A dash, B mesclin, or C ort. It must be ort. That's correct. <laughs> Although I have to admit, I didn't know that. Um, ort, I didn't know that. I'm a registered dietitian and I'm the wellness manager over six cafes and I do nothing but work with a whole bunch of chefs and nobody knew that one. <laughs> I was like, man, if you know this one, you are top dog. <laughs> yeah, I didn't know it. So thank God for multiple choice. <laughs> well, the next time that there's a little bit left over at the end of the meal, instead of calling it leftovers, you're going to call it ort. Yes. <laughs> well, it has been an absolute blast hanging out with you this evening. Likewise. I know life is busy where you're at over in Arizona in the hotel room. You got a lot of stuff going on, but I really, really do appreciate you taking the time to come on the podcast, share with us all of this tips and tidbits and recommendations on how to make our life more impactful for all of us super busy people. We really, really appreciate it. <laughs> that was my pleasure. So much fun. Thank you, Kaylin. You're welcome. Have a good one. You too. Wow. <laughs> what a great interview. Thank you so much, Stephanie Miller. So much knowledge. I'll tell you what, I read the book. I was there for the interview. And then I listened to it two more times while doing all of the editing. And each and every time I just kept learning more and more information because it's really just too much to take in all at one time. I encourage you to listen to the interview a couple of times just to make sure that you can get everything out of it because there is so much good information in here. We are just about out of time, but before we go, I need to draw a card and tell you what the next weekly challenge is. Your challenge for the next week is to invest in a water filter and say goodbye to bottled water. Oh man, it only took what? three or four weeks and now I that's the first one that I cannot do. That's because I live in an area where my water is not safe to drink. Trust me, we did look into water filter systems and unfortunately they were not able to guarantee that they would be able to filter out the carcinogens that are currently in our tap water. If you are lucky enough to live in an area where the drinking water is safe and clean, then I beg you to please participate in this week's weekly challenge in order to counteract all of the harm that I'm forced into making. Sustainer Nation, as always, it has been absolutely wonderful putting together another weekly podcast for you. Be sure to come back next week where I will tell you all about the impact of electronics. The good, the bad, the bad, and how you can make it better. <laughs> Until then, keep saving the world, and I'll talk to you all again next week. Bye!